When last we talked, we talked about the soul. The soul is a big subject, so it's not going to be over now. <laughs> We're going to talk about the soul again. We're going to talk about the soul from Teresa de Avila's point of view for a while. It's interesting to note that Teresa de Avila and John of the Cross knew each other, lived during the same time, and in fact, at one point he was her confessor and had great admiration for her. And after she had written her seven mansions or the interior castle or whatever you want to call it, whatever it's called by whatever translation you use, it's the same book, it's the same thing. And she wrote from her experience. I don't know what that did to John, but somehow it fired him up. And then he started to write from his experience. And a lot of other people came afterwards and they really screwed it up just like Christianity today. Christianity today, Jesus Christ wouldn't recognize. He wouldn't recognize a mega church. He wouldn't recognize Joel Alstein's church. He wouldn't recognize these big places. And the reason he wouldn't recognize them is because they are absolutely nothing like what he was doing. They're nothing like what the apostles and the first disciples were doing. They were meeting in homes, just like we are. They were meeting in small groups, just like we are. They were doing that because the gospel is best served like that. It's not best served to thousands of people all at once. I'll give you an example of that. Who did Jesus feed thousands of people all at once? The feeding of the 5,000? Remember that? Okay. And what happened after that? Does anybody remember what happened after that? No, I didn't think so. This is so sad. Oh, we got to remember her here. Here the we go. Disciples forgot about it. Okay. It wasn't just the disciples. Yes, the disciples forgot about it, but they forgot about everything. They can't be busted for that. The apostles. We're talking about the apostles. No, what we're talking about is the people that he fed. No, when he, no, they went after him. They followed him. And he said, you're not following me for the word of God. You're following me for the food that you ate. That's what happens. That's what happened to you. That's what happens when people look to something other than God for their nourishment, for their supply, for their health, for their life, for anything. That's a big problem. Maybe we'll talk about the relationship between John and Teresa later. Maybe we won't. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't really matter that much. It's just something that it's interesting. I'd like to hear it. What is it? That's right. It means that when she confessed, she had him to confess to. Of course he was a priest. Yeah, it's the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is weird. They developed their own religion based on, I can't even say equal parts, <laughs> equal parts of paganism, equal parts of uh, Christianity, equal, probably not equal parts. It seems like they have less of the gospel than they have of anything else. They have lots of traditions and rituals, but not much gospel. I'm not saying the Catholic Church is bad and wrong. No more bad and wrong than any other manifestation of Christianity today. Organized religion is wicked. It, it's simply wicked. It is. Look at it. Look at the millions of people who have died as a result of organized religion. It's horrendous. It's not just Christians. It's Muslims. It's Jews. It's Buddhists. It's Taoist. It's everybody. When people organize 
they have to set up a hierarchy. Given human nature, that hierarchy has got to be flawed. And flawed means if you let it go long enough, it will be corrupt. And if you let it go long enough, it will become completely corrupt. If you think that the churches are doing the will of God today, then you should go to them. But you're not there. You're here. Now, I think I read some of this last time. I began to think of the soul, as it were, a castle made of a single diamond or a very clear crystal in which there are many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. Now, if we think carefully over this, the soul of the righteous man is nothing but a paradise in which, as God tells us, he takes his delight. For what do you think a room will be like? which is the delight of a king so mighty, so wise, so pure, and so full of all that is good. I could find nothing with which to compare the great beauty of a soul and its great capacity. Now, this is, it just gives us a hint. Now, this woman is familiar with her own soul. You are not. You pretend to be. You imagine you are. But, but trust me, you're not. In fact, however acute our intellects may be, they will no more be able to attain to a comprehension of this than to an understanding of God. For as he himself says, he created us in his image and likeness. Now, if this is so, and it is, there's no point in our fatiguing ourselves by attempting to comprehend the beauty of this castle. For though it is his creature, and there is therefore as much difference between it and God as between creature and creator, the very fact that his majesty says it is made in his image means that we can hardly form any conception of the soul's great dignity and beauty. Sadly, because Christianity today is so lacking in spirituality, all that's left to it is rituals, rules, dogma, doctrine, big churches. They're building churches, not people. They're calling the church a building. A church has never been a building. A church is the body of Christ. To call a church a building is blasphemy, and yet that's what they all do. Well, we're going to church. When people say that, my skin crawls. You can't go to church. You are the church. How do you go to yourself? That just doesn't make sense. See, it's the same thing as, as the soul. Well, the soul, I mean, what is the soul? You don't, well, you are the soul, but I don't feel like the soul. Well, that's true. You're not identified with it. It's no small pity and should cause us no little shame that through our own fault, we do not understand ourselves or know who we are. Well, why should this be a problem? How is it important for you to know yourself or know who you are? Why should that be important to the gospel? Would it not be a sign of great ignorance if a person were asked who he is and could not say and had no idea who his father or his mother was or from what country he came? Though that is great stupidity, our own is incomparably greater if we make no attempts to discover what we are and only know that we are living in these bodies and have a vague idea because we have heard it and because our faith tells us so that we possess souls. This is our condition. This is where we find ourselves. Oh, yeah. We all by faith say, yes, I have a soul. We all agree with that. Yes, that's we're right there with what she said. We have a vague idea of what it is. Very vague. A little less vague now that we've read some of this, or maybe even worse now, because it's confusing, which is what it's supposed to be. As to what good qualities there may be in our souls, or who dwells within them, or how precious they are, those are things which we seldom consider, 
And so we trouble very little about carefully preserving the soul's beauty. All our interest is centered in the rough setting of the diamond and in the outer wall of the castle. That is to say, in these bodies of ours. You can't deny this. We are body central. We are centered in the body. We identify with the body. We identify with anything the body shows us, brings us through the five senses. This is the problem. This is what sullies the soul. This is what dirties the soul. This is why Jesus washed the disciples' feet, because your feet is where you touch the earth. That's how you touch the earth. That's how you get dirty. So your feet could be your five senses then, couldn't they? Or the understanding that comes through the five senses. The intellectual understanding, because that's what kind of an understanding it is. And she's pretty clear about that. She doesn't mess around with that. There's no point in fatiguing ourselves by attempting to comprehend the beauty of this castle. She says, forget it. It is a fruitless labor. Don't do it. Well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? That's like saying to you, well, all you have to do is not pay any attention to your monkey mind when you're meditating. Just center yourself and don't have any thoughts and don't have any feelings and be at peace. Just sit quietly. We can't do it because of the mind. Well, this is the same thing. The mind, again, is standing in our way. So she goes on to say, let us now imagine that this castle, as I've said, contains many mansions, some above, otherwise, others below, others at each side. And in the center and midst of them all is the chiefest mansion, where the most secret things pass between God and the soul. You must think over this comparison very carefully. Perhaps God will be pleased to use it to show you something of the favors which he is pleased to grant to souls and of the differences between them. So far as I have understood this to be possible, for there are so many of them, souls that is, that nobody can possibly understand them all, much less anyone as stupid as I. For if the Lord grants you these favors, it will be a great consolation to you to know that such things are possible. And if you never receive any, you can still praise his great goodness. For as it does no harm to think of the things laid up for us in heaven and of the joys of the blessed, but rather makes us rejoice and strive to attain those joys ourselves. Just so, it will do us no harm to find that it is possible in this our exile for so great a God to commune with such malodorous worms and to love him for his great goodness and boundless mercy. Well, just reading this, you can tell that she is a different caliber than you or I. We find it difficult to read even. Malodorous worms, what do you mean? Yeah, sinners, what do you mean? Don't you know we're king's kids? All we have to do is hold our wallets up and God's going to fill them up, fill them up, because that's the important thing. The important thing is checks from the government and filling our wallets up. That's the nice thing about life. That's the real cream of the crop. That's what we're really after. That's what we really want. That's why that's uppermost in our minds. And when you say something like that around somebody who really wants Jesus Christ, really wants union with God, <sighs> that's going to be like iron sharpens iron, so man sharpens man. That's going to clash. There's going to be a big clash. When the spirit and the flesh run into each other, it's going to be a big clash, and the flesh is going to limp away. Remember Jacob wrestling with the angel? Jacob limped away. He may have prevailed over the angel to a point, but he limped away and limped the rest of his life. And I can promise you, 
that when your spirit and your flesh clash, you will limp for the rest of your life. Thomas Keating was a contemplative, modern contemplative. He said, holiness is the process whereby God changes our attitudes toward our trials and tribulations. This should give you an idea of what is in store for us as we dig into the soul. Trials and tribulations. But why should it be so? Well, it's that way because of the intellect, because of the flesh, because of the part of the soul, the lower parts of the soul that have depended upon the five senses to get their information, to bring in information, which has led the soul astray and mucked it up with silt and stagnant water, foul, stagnant water, and with things that are not alive. See, because all of this world, though it, it looks alive to us, it's a shadow of life. Everything you see that you consider so beautiful is a shadow of the beauty that God has awaiting for you. So when you look at a rose and it looks so perfect, it smells so beautiful, and you look at it and you think, God is great. Yes, God is great. But that's nothing compared to the real rose, the rose of Sharon. And you look at a lion or a tiger, you look at them and think, wow, they're beautiful. And they are beautiful until you see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then you know what real beauty is. Well, you may not know, but at least you'll be dumbfounded by it. And you will be. You'll be dumbfounded. You'll put your hand over your mouth. You'll fall on your face and you'll say, the Lord, he is God. <laughs> Incidentally, everyone who's ever lived I don't care who they are, how far back. Everyone will say, the Lord, he is God. Everyone will bend their knee, bow their head, and say, the Lord, he is God. Everyone that's ever lived. That's a promise. The fact that people don't believe that today doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. God has never had anyone vote on his laws. He's never asked what we think about it. He's never asked, well, what's your position on that? He's just said, this is the way it is. I know, because I made it all. Everything, everything is mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, he says. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. It's all mine. You notice the little sting that creates in you? The little tug at your ego? If you don't notice it, it's because you're not aware. And so, one of the first things we have to do is start to become aware. The best thing to become aware of is your soul. Unfortunately, you won't become aware of your soul because your intellect is blocking the path. It's got the door closed. It's got all the locks locked. It will not let you through. But you can still get through. So she goes on to say, doesn't do us any harm to think about these things. Makes us rejoice, even if we don't attain ourselves these things. Just so it will do us no harm to find that it's possible in this our exile for so great a God to commune with such malodorous worms and to love him for his great goodness and boundless mercy. It's hard to think of yourself as a malodorous worm because you're so used to thinking of yourself more highly than you ought you're so used to believing the intellect's lies. You're so used to believing the lies that are fed to you on a daily basis through the five senses. And this is why the first part of this has to be the cleansing of the intellect and the five senses. If you're going to know anything about your soul, you've got to start there. Just like with the gospel, if you're going to know anything about God, you've got to start with repentance. Repentance means... You're messed up and you need to repent. You need to acknowledge your state and you need to turn away from it, repent, and turn to something other than what you've been turning to. What have you been turning to? Well, the five senses. It's not your fault. I don't know why that would make anybody happy, but for some reason that seems to delight people. Oh, good, it's not my fault. Yeah, but it doesn't change anything. You're still 
in the sewer. So what does it matter whether it's your fault? What does it matter whether you fell in or you're put in it or whether you walked in it knowingly? What does it matter? You're still up to here in sewage. To get out of it, you need to repent. That means turn away from what got you into it. That means turn away from the five senses. It means stop depending so heavily upon the intellect. The intellect can be cleansed. The five senses can be cleansed, but not by you. You can't do anything. You can't do it. Jesus Christ himself said, I of myself can do nothing. How much less can you do? I'm sure that anyone who finds it harmful to realize that it's possible for God to grant such favors during this our exile must be greatly lacking in humility. Anyone who is saying we're malodorous worms is not lacking in humility and in love of his neighbor. For otherwise, how could we help rejoicing that God should grant these favors to one of our brethren when this in no way hinders him from granting them to ourselves? and that his majesty should bestow an understanding of his greatness upon anyone soever. This insanity that the world has brought to us, it's just bizarre. We're so crazy. In this life, if I have an apple and I cut it in half and I give you half and I keep half, I only have half an apple and you only have half an apple. So we think that's the way things are. That's not the way things are with God. If God gives an apple to one person, it doesn't mean that everybody else has to go without or that he has to share that apple with everybody. He's got enough apples for everybody. Then why are people starving? Why don't people have apples? Well, it's not because of God. It's called supply and demand. He's got the supply, but you have to make the demand. But when a Christian or whatever these people call themselves pray, they literally demand, fill my wallet, give me money, give me a car, give me a house, give me a plane. Give me a yacht. But that's not what God's waiting to hear. God's waiting for people to want union with himself. He won't wait forever. He'll drive you to it. He will drive you to it. You know, the funny thing is, is like, who am I to say this? I am nobody. But you know what? Every single prophet, every single man of God, genuine, real deal prophet man of God from forever until today says the same thing. I'm nothing. <laughs> Send somebody else. Jeremiah said it. Moses said it. Everybody said it. Send somebody. Send somebody. Surely you got somebody better than me. But that's really not what he's interested in. It's really bizarre when you think about it. She goes on to say, Sometimes he will do this only to manifest his power. As he said of the blind man to whom he gave this sight, when the apostles asked him if he were suffering for his own sins or for the sins of his parents, he grants these favors. Yeah, you remember that story, I'm sure, of that. Then when the disciple, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, but so the glory of God could be shown. What kind of a God has somebody blind from birth just so that he can later, well, who knows how many years later, show that he can heal a blind man? That sounds cruel. But that's what happens when you judge God, when you judge that God was created in your image and after your likeness instead of you being created in his image and after his likeness and you reaching up to his image and his likeness and trying to pull yourself up to that. You can get a hand up from God. You can't pull yourself up, but you can get a hand up from God and he can pull you up. But there's something you have to do if it's only passive, if it's only allowing him to take your hand. You don't actively have to grab his hand. All you have to do is allow him to lift you up. Right now, that doesn't seem crucial. 
But trust me, as we get deeper into this, it will be crucial because contemplation is about God infused contemplation, as John of the Cross called it, is about God pulling you up, not about you pulling yourself up. It's about you not doing anything. I don't know whether you know it or not. You, you know, I, well, you know, intellectually, you can't do. But the truth is, you believe you can do. And until you tell yourself the truth, well, you're kind of stuck in a lie, clearly. Being stuck in a lie is not a good place. We're stuck in a lie right now. The lie we're stuck in is this world. It's a lie. It is not. We're citizens of the United States. No, we're citizens of heaven, but we don't know it. He grants these favors then not because those who receive them are holier than those who do not. Basically, what, what she's saying is the blind man wasn't healed because he was holier than his parents or his parents were holier than him or, or anything. It was so that the glory of God could be manifest in order that God's greatness may be made known, as we see in the case of St. Paul and the Magdalene, and in order that we may praise him in his creatures. I was watching the other day out in the garden, an oriole flying around, you know, the yellow breast. And they're beautiful. And they come every year, spring of every year, and they raise their children here in our front yard every year. They've been doing it for years. And I stop and praise God because of his creatures. He made them so beautiful, so reliable, so predictable, so that we could look to him and say, this didn't just happen. There's a great love intelligence, beauty, mercy, goodness behind creation. Well, yeah, it's true. Some of it's been corrupted. Rats and ticks, poisonous, venomous snakes and things, they're corrupted. That's creation corrupted. But it's only corrupted here. It's not corrupted in its reality. And its reality is God. It's pure there. It's corrupted here. And when this corruption is wiped away, what would be left is the purity. That's a good thing. You should be happy about that. That's what she's saying. It's a good thing. Maybe said that these things seem impossible, that it's better not to scandalize the weak, but less harm is done by their disbelieving us than by our failure to edify those to whom God grants these favors and who will rejoice and awaken others to a fresh love of him who grants such mercies according to the greatness of his power and majesty. I took this on knowing that I couldn't do it knowing that I am not up to the task. How am I going to tell you what nobody could ever tell you? Who am I? Nobody. Why should I be able to do it? I can't. But that doesn't matter. That's not what's important. The important thing is that it's not going to do harm that people don't believe me. It's going to only do harm to people if they don't believe God. If you don't believe me, so what? If you don't believe God, hey, you got a problem. You know, when Jeremiah went to the king, Jehoiakim, tried to tell him something, king will listen. And they got a new king. King of Babylon came in, removed Jehoiakim, placed him with, or maybe Jehoiakim got killed, I can't remember exactly. But anyhow, Zedekiah then placed him with Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the puppet on the throne that the king of Babylon placed there. And it was horrible what he, what he did, what happened. Jeremiah was a prophet against his own will. Didn't want to do it. God went to him, talked to him. He said, no, I've sent somebody else. I'm just a child. I can't speak. God says to him, shut up. Don't say that. See, I've touched your mouth. I put my words in your mouth. Go and speak what I tell you to speak to them. And Jeremiah says, they'll kill me. He says, they won't kill you. They won't kill you because I won't let them. Well, they didn't kill Jeremiah. They made his life pretty miserable, but they didn't kill him. 
Jeremiah spoke what God gave him to say, and they were furious. Jeremiah basically was telling him, well, you're going to have to go out and surrender to the king of Babylon, and you're going to have to be slaves to the king of Babylon. This is God's will to teach you a lesson because you've been pigs. You've been pigs who have not listened to his word. You made yourselves unclean, just like pigs, by worshiping other gods who are not gods at all, who can't hear, can't speak, can't see, can't talk. They're just pieces of wood and metal, and that you're an idiot. You're an idiot because you cut down a tree, you use some of the wood to build a fire to bake your bread over and cook your food over, and then you take some of the tree and you carve an image out of it, and you set it up and you say, you are my God, you created me. God says, how idiotic is that? We don't think of that. No, we, we see our money, and oh, people don't think of their God as money, but it is. The God of Mammon was the Syrian God of money, not the new. You cannot serve God and Mammon, Jesus said. You can't serve money and God. People don't think that they're serving a God when they're serving money, but they are. And it's a false God, and it's nothing. It can't speak. It, it's not worth anything. It's just dirty paper. The only reason that you think that money is of value is because you've been told by everyone that it's valuable and because they use it as legal tender. Well, if they were using beads, you'd be using the beads. If you were using green stones that were smooth on one side and rough on the other, you'd be using those. You'd be thinking those were valuable. If the earth were made of gold, a man would die for a handful of dirt. That is our condition. We are mixed up, confused, and led astray by the five senses and the intellect which has been built up through the five senses and the soul that has been covered in mud. Not the nice kind of mud, but the stinky kind. You know the kind when you're digging in clay and it's wet and you get down and all of a sudden it just stinks so bad. You think, my God, what is this? Just mud. The longer it's away from pure water and pure light and pure air, the more it stinks. Just like our soul. The longer it's away from its source, the more clogged and black and disgusting and smelly it gets. That's what Teresa de Avila is saying. And as you can tell, that is not what Christians today are saying. Well, no, I should say, actually, that is what Christians today are saying. That's not what the other people who call themselves Christians, nominal Christians, Christians in name only, that's not what they're saying today. They're saying their God is money. They're saying their God is what money can buy. Sorry to say it, but that's what it is. Interesting, that's exactly what David Wilkerson was saying 30 years ago, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago. No, not 10 years ago. He died in 2011. So he stopped saying it then. And they're still not listening, just like they've never been listening and probably won't listen until they have no choice. She goes on to say, I'm sure that if any one of you doesn't believe this, she will never learn it by experience. Well, if you don't believe it, you'll never learn it by experience. What does that mean? Well, if you don't believe it, how can you experience it? It's impossible to please God without faith. What that means is without faith, you, you can't believe that there is a God. And if you can't believe that there is a God, how are you going to please him? This is really the path she's taken. For God's will is that no bounds should be set to his works. No bounds should be set to his works. We set bounds to his works every day. When you believe in money, you set bounds to his works. You don't, God can't give me food. I have to have money. God can't give me what I need. I have to have money. I have to have the other God, mammon. I have to worship him. I have to bow down to him. I have to submit to him. That's not the way to get to God. That's the way 
to get to mud. Stinky, black, smelly, sticky mud. If you ever step in clay, you know that it clings to your shoes. You can walk in clay, but the more you walk in clay, the heavier it gets and the more it clings to you until it starts to slow you down. Never do such a thing then if the Lord doesn't lead you by this road. Let's return to our beautiful and delightful castle and see how we can enter it. This is really the bottom line. Here we are in the courtyard of the soul. In the courtyard of the soul are so many disgusting, foul, wicked things that we have allowed in through the five senses, that it's not a nice place, not a very nice place at all. Certainly not a place a clean child of God would wish to dwell and wallow. I seem rather to be talking nonsense, she says, for if this castle is the soul, there can clearly be no question of our entering it, for we ourselves are the castle. And it would be absurd to tell someone to enter room when he was in it already. But you must understand that there are many ways of being in a place. You're in a place now. You could be angry. You could be happy. You could be distracted or you could be focused. There are many ways. You could be confused or you could be clear as a bell. Many ways of being in a place. Many souls remain in the outer court of the castle, which is the place occupied by the guards. They're not interested in entering it and have no idea what there is in that wonderful place or who dwells in it or even how many rooms it has. You will have read certain books on prayer which advise the soul to enter within itself and that's exactly what this means. We're going to be running out of time soon, but I think we can go a little bit further. A short time ago, I was told by a very learned man that souls without prayer are like people whose bodies or limbs or paralyzed. They possess feet and hands, but they can't control them. In the same way, there are souls so infirm and so accustomed to busying themselves with outside affairs through the five senses that nothing can be done for them. And it seems as though they are incapable of entering within themselves at all. So accustomed have they grown to living all the time with the reptiles and other creatures to be found in the outer court of the castle that they have almost become like them. And although by nature they are so richly endowed as to have the power of holding converse with none other than God himself, there's nothing that can be done for them unless they strive to realize their miserable condition. And to remedy it, they will be turned into pillars of salt for not looking within themselves. Of course, this is a reference to Lot's wife because she looked back. See, the problem is, is we're always looking back through the five senses instead of forward to our destiny, to what we are being called to, to what we were created to be. As far as I can understand, the door of entry into this castle is prayer and meditation. I don't say mental prayer rather than vocal, for if it is prayer at all, it must be accompanied by meditation. If a person does not think whom he is addressing and what he is asking for and who it is that is asking and of whom he is asking it, I don't consider that he is praying at all, even though he be constantly moving his lips. She comes in with a baseball bat. I know, for 16th century Spain, baseball bats weren't invented. But humor me. She comes in with a wrecking ball. And I know that in 16th century Spain, wrecking balls weren't invented. But humor me. And she just knocks that crap out of all of our crap. And that's good. Because we need somebody to do that. And you can thank God that I'm here to help. Nothing I enjoy more than tearing down 
vain, empty, ridiculous doctrines and dogma and beliefs that stand in our way and keep us from knowing our God and our Creator. Nothing delights me more than kicking the crap out of them. When you're clinging to them and that kick comes to you and you go, what? Don't cling to them. That's the remedy. Stop clinging to them. Stop clinging to your false gods and it won't be painful. Easier said than done. True, it is sometimes possible to pray without paying heed to these things, but that is only because they have been thought about previously. If a man is in the habit of speaking to God's majesty as he would speak to his slave and never wonders if he is expressing himself properly, but merely utters the words that come to his lips because he has learned them by heart through constant repetition, I don't call that prayer at all. And God grant no Christian may ever speak to him so. At any rate, I hope in God that none of you will, for we are accustomed here to talk about interior matters, and that is a good way of keeping oneself from falling into such animal-like habits. Now, I'm talking to you, the people here, and sadly, the people who may or may not be listening to this podcast, if it ever gets published, which I really don't know whether it will or not, I don't care. I'm doing it because I was told to do it. I wasn't necessarily told to broadcast it. I'm just do it. So I'm doing it. I'm obeying to the best of my ability. If there's another step in this obedience, I'll take that step when I'm told to take it. But right now, what I'm told to do is this. So right now, what I will do is this. If you have a problem with that, enjoy it. That's all I can say. Why else would you hold a problem unless you were somehow enjoying it? Why else would you cling to a problem instead of to your faith unless you were somehow enjoying it, unless it were somehow giving you something that you really want more than God, that you really want more than union with God. Remember, our God is a consuming fire. Anybody who wants to be joined with a consuming fire is crazy. You will be consumed. All the wood, hay, and stubble that came through the five senses will be burned up. And what will be left was anything that was real, any moment where you really submitted to God, any moment where you were really humble, any moment where you really were open to him and you really did actually will whatever he willed in spite of yourself. Let us say no more then of these paralyzed souls who unless the Lord himself comes and commands them to rise are like the man who had lain beside the pool for 30 years. They are unfortunate creatures and live in great peril. So here I am sending out a podcast to paralyzed people, unfortunate creatures. And I do feel for them because they do live in great peril and they don't even know it. Man, what could be sadder than that? Ignorance really is bliss, though. They don't know it, but they're not really that blissful. They're pretty miserable if they ever face it. They face it every once in a while when they stop drinking and drugs and sex and consumerism and all the things we occupy ourselves with other than union with God through prayer, meditation, contemplation. Prayer, meditation, contemplation. Prayer is a step to meditation. Meditation is a step to contemplation. So it's like a ladder. You got to climb the ladder. At least you got to start. Let us rather think of certain souls, other souls who do eventually enter the castle. These are very much absorbed in worldly affairs, but their desires are good. This should give you hope because you're very much absorbed in worldly desires, as you've shown me beyond the shadow of a doubt this morning, with your rejoicing over receiving government checks. That's very much absorbed in worldly affairs. But the desires are good sometimes, though infrequently they commend themselves to our Lord 
and they think about the state of their souls, though not very carefully. And this, you got to admit, unfortunately, that's us. That's where we're at. I'd like to say we're somewhere else, but I'd be lying. I'd like to say that I was somewhere else, but I dare not. Just in case. Just in case. Full of a thousand preoccupations as they are, they pray only a few times a month. And as a rule, they're thinking all the time of their preoccupations, for they are very attached to them. And where their treasure is, there is their heart also. When your treasure's in the bank, you're going to think it's great to get money. Wow, that's, that's nice. That's great. Wow, that's really cool. Because that's where my heart is. That's where my treasure is. It's a sad state of affairs. But where we are is where we are. Where we ain't is where we ain't. Now, you may think you pray more than a few times a month, but she's saying that what we consider prayer, she doesn't consider prayer. And I agree with her. From time to time, however, they shake their minds free of those preoccupations. And it is a great thing that they should know themselves well enough to realize that they are not going the right way to reach the castle door. Now, I don't enjoy correcting you because... Your stupor is so thick that it's like a Missouri mule. You got to take a two by four, a big old branch from a tree and whack them upside the head to get their attention before you can get them to do anything. That's what a stupor is like. You get in these stupors through the five senses. You get in these worldly stupors where the world seems so real and God seems so unreal that you become stupid, slow to apprehend, thick and slow like like a river of molasses in winter but every once in a while you can shake yourself free eventually they enter the first rooms on the lowest floor but so many reptiles get in with them that they're unable to appreciate the beauty of the castle or to find any peace within it still they've done a good deal by entering at all it doesn't matter how low you are in your soul what matters is that you want to enter. It doesn't matter all the things that are holding you back. It only matters that you want to enter because your desire is God's desire. He wants you to enter. He wants you to traverse those rooms. He wants you to go through them until you get to him. And then he wants to embrace you and envelop you in himself. You will be one with God and still yourself. Don't ask me how because I don't know how you can be one with God and still yourself. But Jesus Christ is one with God and still himself. He managed it, so I imagine he can still manage it. You will think this is beside the point, since by the goodness of the Lord you are not one of these. But you must be patient, for there is no other way in which I can explain to you some ideas I have had about certain interior matters concerning prayer. May it please the Lord to enable me to say something about them. For to explain to you what I should like is very difficult unless you have had personal experience. And anyone with such experience, as you'll see, cannot help touching upon subjects which, please God, shall, by his mercy, never concern us. I haven't got a whole lot of experience with this. I consider 50 years the beginning, how you scratch the surface. I consider the latter years like the latter-day rain. I consider them much more valuable than the beginning years. Although the beginning years are much sweeter, and the latter years tend not to be as sweet, tend to be arid and difficult, but they are so much more productive. So I consider the years that I have left the productive years, the most productive years. Although I have had progress in the past, 
great progress, but nothing compared to the progress that I will enjoy from this time forward. Hopefully you consider that too. I will leave you with a miserable thought of Thomas Keating's. Vulnerability means to be hurt over and over again without seeking to love less, but more. That is the key to Christianity right there. Though it is a miserable key, an annoying key. It is nonetheless the key to Christianity. Let me tell you that if you dare this quest, this journey of the interior, to find out how to enter your soul, how to cleanse it, how to purify it, how to unify it with God Almighty, you're going to suffer. It's a promise. Mm -hmm.